0: Welcome to the SNR Podcast. I'm your host, Salima Ismail. In today's episode, we speak with Connie Evans, a retired Navy captain who now manages the HRO work at the Military Health System. We'll learn about her appreciation for well-functioning systems that support doing the right thing and her commitment to change management, which makes her such a fantastic HRO expert
1: was interesting. Always had that kind of niche for biology, right? So liking to learn about plants and animals. Couldn't decide what to do with that science. So really started in a junior college, went to a one year LPN program to see if nursing was where I wanted to go. I love taking care of people. Love seeing people healthy. And so I knew I had that passion. And then you know worked in a nursing home and, and one of the nurses said, you know, you're too smart to be just working this LPS an LPN, go back to school, get your RN. So did that. And went when when I attended school. One of my girlfriends joined the Navy and said, Hey, come follow me. So it's kind of been that my life has kind of been that, you know, people giving me words of wisdom and acting upon those words of wisdom. So I followed her into the Navy.
0: That's a pretty interesting way to get on that path to the military. I mean, could you share a little bit about your experience?
1: In the military, as a military nurse, you are expected to be able to function and work in any work setting that you're assigned. And so some you may be qualified, others may not be qualified, but you have to learn how to become qualified for that, that position. As you move up in rank, you start to have more administrative jobs. So now you're in charge of different areas. But for me, for my Perspective. It was just the fact that I was able to always go into a new duty station and learn a new job.
0: So I understand after all of your military experience in healthcare, you came to a bit of a realization. Would you care to share what that was? uh
1: realized that healthcare just a lot of good things happening in healthcare right so good policies good people trying to do the right thing however broken not because of the people but just a lot of systems broken systems so we were thinking that we were doing the right thing but realizing that we truly the system prevented us from doing the right thing
0: thinking you were doing the right thing but the system was preventing you from doing that That's a really profound observation. Do you have any examples of you personally encountering that? So
1: interesting you ask that question because uh, my first introduction to IHI, Institute of Health, where I was a clinic manager in Pensacola, where we thought we were doing the right thing, right? So the students all come in at the same time, 6.30, and we kind of weaned them out. Okay, you go here, kind of do the triage process. So it was just a a line of students, a room of students, and the nurse kind of triaging those students. So Thinking we're doing the right thing, but every time you look at the process, you go, this doesn't make any sense. Why do they have to come in and stand in line to wait to be seen by a doctor? Why can't we just get them an appointment? Until you know the system is broken, but that was the way, as one of the nurses told me, this is the way we've always done it. And so the system that way for the patient.
0: I think anyone who has ever questioned a system or procedure has heard that as a response. You know, the this is how we've always done it. But when you know there's a better way, how do you implement that change? So the change to system, that's a very good
1: question. (laughs) How do you change the system? So I tell people that it's not going to change overnight, but you make small changes, right? So when you're looking at system-wide, you got to always remember you're going to have to test small changes of time, you know, so test, retest, and then do it over again. A lot of people just want something to happen all at once, right? No you do small incremental changes. And then before you know it, you look up, you've made a system change. Let's take that example we just had with the, with the student. Small changes of time. So the first thing we did with the student was to say, let's put in phones around the clinic so that when they come in for a walk-in, they have a means to immediately go have a place where they can call and get an appointment. Before we knew it, six months later, there was no more lines at 6.30, 6.45 in the morning. They walk into the clinic, they were, had a signed appointment, and as well as their instructors could say, call over and say, hey, I have a student that's sick. Can you put them into an appointment? So it was a small incremental changes made. And over time, it just became a system change.
0: But how do you deal with the people who are change resistant along the way?
1: So people who are change resistant usually don't believe that it's going to be a positive outcome. We tried this before. It didn't work. Or when you leave, this process is going to go back to the old way. So to win people over, you got to give them constant wins and they have to be positive and it's not going to happen overnight. So people got to realize that resistance to change is very strong. And so to get someone to believe in that change, they have to see it's a win for me. So particularly the nurse who was the triage nurse, when we first started the project, he was like, it's never going to work. You're trying to make changes that this is the way they've always done it. Until when he saw that, oh, okay, now I don't come into the clinic at 630 and there's a line of people. Now I come into the clinic and I can work with the physician because they have appointments, they have a template, patients go into the room. Then that was a win for him.
0: So I guess that personal investment is key. But how did you develop that knowledge and that wisdom around change that lets you adapt to it so well and help people around you adapt to it so well? It's interesting.
1: <laughs> I think because my life has been a change every three years.
0: Really? How does that happen?
1: So every three years, so 26 years, every three years, I have to move. Every duty station was new location, new people, a new outlook on life and trying to understand how to maneuver through those changes, how to keep as much as standard or as normal for myself as well as the kids. Because, you know, I raised two kids by myself. I was a single parent most of my entire career. So I had to keep normalcy with the kids as well as myself. So I had three main criteria every time I relocated. I would look for housing that were safe, good schools. I would always find a church and then I would always make sure I locate activities for the kids. I always kept the chaos as much as normal as I could.
0: Were there any times you struggled with dealing with change?
1: I think the only time I had problem with change is when I transitioned out of the military. It was really hard. That was the first time that I was kind of lost in the world. Like, I don't fit in as a civilian. I, you know, I don't have the military life anymore. So I was like, oh my gosh, I can't work with this. You know, not depression, but borderline. And you hear about a lot of military, they have a hard time with change. But that was the only time in life that I couldn't make that transition.
0: That sounds really hard. But I'm wondering, did the military provide any resources to help make it easier? You
1: know, in the military, we have this transition class that they offer, and they actually recommend that you take it twice before you retire. So they prepare you for transitioning because it's a hard, and people don't say, why do you have problems coming out of the military? Because it's a a definitely, you know, every three years, someone told me where to live, uniform to wear, where I can shop here's your bank, made those decisions for me. So now you transition to a world with no one making those decisions. So the class offers you the opportunity to be ready to transition to the civilian world.
0: So what was it that ultimately helped you through this?
1: So I am a very religious person. I believe in your help. really comes, you know, spiritual. And so for six months, I didn't work. And every morning I was able to just sit, you know, I was staying at home or, and I had the opportunity just to really focus on me. So what's important to me, what's important to life. And I think that helped me. I mean, it just, one day I woke up and I was like, oh, life is pretty good, you know? (laughs) Right. And, uh, (laughs) And I made it through that change. And I had to decide what was good for me. And I tell you, safe and reliable. So it's interesting in the hallway, kind of just, I ran into one of the other nurses and she was getting ready to transition out. And she was like, Oh, let me introduce you to a, you know a company that we're working with. So I met you know Michael. And one of the things I have to say, I think it was faith because I had always said, if I can get back into the work field, this is what I want to do. I want to make the work. I want to make military medicine or healthcare better. And I didn't have the tools. I wasn't equipped. I didn't, you know, I wouldn't couldn't even tell you how to get out there and make that happen. But I always said in the back of my head, that's something I would love to do. Make it better for patients. And so I think your faith kind of brings you into connection with what you should be doing, your greater purpose, right? It goes back to your niche. You gotta find your reason, your purpose. And then when you find that, then it becomes life becomes a lot clearer meaningful.
0: Connie, it sounds to me like you have a very strong affinity to structure and system. And because that's so important to you, you're able to really spot or identify when those systems or structures are not working. So I'm wondering if you have any insight on what formed that part of your personality?
1: Right, probably I will say, military
0: life. I'd I'd like to point out, though, that it seems like this inclination was developed before you joined the military. You know, you mentioned earlier that you joined because your friend advised you to, and you relied on her wisdom to guide you. And I think that's part of the system and part of the structure, where you're looking at signs that are externally to yourself to guide you to where you need to be. So how... Do you think that happened? Like, how do you think that became a part of your personality?
1: That's it's interesting. And I never thought of that aspect. But I would say so my mom and dad are two, totally two opposite people. My dad didn't care if we went to school or not, okay, to stay at home, just be around the family. Whereas my mom, I think my mother's parenting skill just really ingrained in me that you got to have a structural life. You got to have church. You have to get an education. You have to have, you need to work. And when you work, you got to give a hundred percent, always do well in whatever you do. I never really sat down and kind of process the way I am. <laughs> but I think the parenting I really think just growing up with my mother, having that structured life and kind of living the way that she raised me really brought me to the military and then to where I am
0: today. That's a really interesting insight. So now that I've got you thinking about this, are there any other qualities or habits that you think you formed based on the way you were raised? You know,
1: one of the things that I've always done, too, in life is that I listen to others. When people would give me advice, you kind of decipher, is that good advice or is that bad advice? And you kind of look at the person Who giving you the advice, you know, so what's their background? Where are they from? And, you know, and so when I when people try to tell me, well, you know, you should think about this, you should do this, I listen, I I may not necessarily act upon it immediately. But then if I find that it's really good advice to move in life in that direction, then I, I usually take that advice.
0: But then what do you do when the roles are reversed and you're the one giving advice to people who may not be as receptive as you are? So one thing
1: is that it's, it's good to have a strong history. And so probably in the civilian sector, I probably wouldn't be as, as successful in the military because I do have a you know relationship and people trust. So what I do is I first build trust. Let me tell you, let me show you, I'm here with you. I don't think you can come into a facility to say, okay, we're going to make these changes or here's the process. Now you go and do do good things with it. I'm here with you. It's going to be over time. I'm not going anywhere. We are partners together. Trust me when I say it works, because if it doesn't, then my word or my reputation that it failed. I think that's the wording. Hey, I'm with you. And they see the hard work. So, you know, Walter Reed, Fort Belvoir, they see me there with their units, see me there working with them. And so it's a trust relationship that we have. And over time, they see the benefits. And so it's just a, a really nice relationship that you have with the client.
0: So what were some of the units or clinics like before you started working with them through their change and through their HRO journey? And just a lot of burnout. I mean, every description of
1: how cultured, it's just not working in a healthcare setting. You know, patients unhappy, staff unhappy, burnout, um, turnover, high rate. So just really, you could you could see uh, and feel the unbalance or the imbalance. I'm not sure what, how to describe this clinic, right? A clinic that you say to yourself, I do not want to get healthcare here. So that was the type of clinic we worked with.
0: What do you mean by that? What does the clinic where you wouldn't want to get health care from look like?
1: You will hear the nurses, you know, I can't wait to leave here. This place is just, it's just awful. Management doesn't care and just complete burnout. When you will walk in the clinic, the patients would be sitting in the, I mean, full of patients in the waiting room. Just, you know, I've been here since such and such time or going to the desk saying, are you going to ever call my name? Are you ever going to get to me? So just that type of environment in that clinic. I mean, had some good things and good people, very good people, but just the system, just challenges in the system.
0: You mean the system made it hard for them to be a functioning, cohesive clinic. So then what changed after you started working with them? Safe and Reliable started working with them early months of 2018.
1: And this is 2020, right? They're not where they could be, but they're definitely a better clinic. The huddle, just they come together as a team. The physicians are there it's talking about the patients. It's talking about the plan. They're actually, you know, they're looking at films to see how they can make their huddle process better. They round in their clinic. The leaders are walking around asking staff, how can I help you? What can we do for you? The nurses, I hear, hey, can you show me something in lens? Oh, I want to learn how to do this. It's a clinic now that you kind of smile, you know, when you walk through there because the environment, the feel is just really nice. So they're not having this high turnover rate. They're now Looking more as a team, how do we make this better as a team? Their Joes, so their patient satisfaction going up. As a matter of fact, internal medicine was ranked one of the top clinics in the national capital area, so got really high scores in their Joes. So they're starting to see when we come together as a team, we work as a team. They're starting to see the benefits of it.
0: So in all the things you've mentioned, uh, you touch on huddles and leadership rounding, which we always. Mention as best practices. What, in your opinion, is more important between the two? Actually, rounding, number one, (laughs) leadership, rounding, engagement. Because
1: think about it, if you look at elevator speech for HRO, leadership engagement, everyone has a voice, right? And number one, I can't encourage voice unless I have the leadership engagement piece. And so leadership has got to be the one encouraging voice. And one of the ways that you encourage people to speak up, I'm present, I'm available, I'm talking to you, you see me, you trust me. And so now I I encourage voice. And with that encouragement of voice, right, transitioning to a, a learning, because while I'm out there rounding and learning, now I can make changes because I've learned of broken processes.
0: Do you have any of those on the field examples of learning and engagement happening?
1: I'll take Walter Reed, leader, Colonel Barr. Fantastic. I mean, he's like a walking HRO. (laughs) He was out rounding and he asked one of his units, he said, what can I do? What are some of your burning issues? Just tell me some of the things. And they simply said, sir, we work in an area where we have patients that come in and we need to have a lock on this door. He said, they said, we've been asking for a couple of years. Can you change the lock on the door? Hadn't happened. By the end of the day, the lock was changed. It just that simple, a leader getting out, hearing some of the issues just made a world of difference. He has a huge challenge with staffing, but he goes back to the units and he talks about he tell them, he said, look, I don't have as much control over staffing as I would like to have. So here's what's going on. A winner, because now the leader informing the staff, just real simple, quick wins has gained the trust of that leader.
0: And that's a really powerful example of communication going well. And I'm wondering if you have any examples of the flip side where communication has broken down. And this is a true
1: story. So we've been working with one site. The leader was visible every day, out there rounding, talking to people, learning about the unit. And we had a change of leadership. And when we had that change, that leader, the new leader, decided rounding is not important, not out there. You could feel, immediately feel the differences. I was just like, wow, it doesn't feel the same. And the difference was that the staff didn't feel as though they had voice. They couldn't talk to the leader. The leader isn't seen. The leader's not visible. And the principles of HRO the work that we're trying to do, not important.
0: So what advice do you have for leaders who do want to round with their teams and want to do a good job? When you go back to why are we doing this, you
1: really have to go keep it simple. I think I really, I like when Alan, when he presents rounding, because he keeps it really simple look, guys, you're out there learning about your units, about the behavior, about how to make it work. And the only way you're going to do this is that you get out there and you talk to the people, the front line, who can make it better. In the military, people feel, you know, the thought is that, oh, this is something new. It's going to go away. It's not going to be here. And so we have to keep it going. We have to say, it's not going to go away. This is the way you're going to live in your hospital world. It's the way to keep our patients safe every time. And so- it's not going away. It's so funny. Some of the units, I go in, I, I'll say, I'm still here. <laughs> they'll, start, they'll start laughing
0: because, you know, it's not going away. If you would like to contact Connie or have any questions about the podcast, please email podcast at srh.care. That's all for today. The Safe and Reliable podcast is produced by me, Salima Ismail. Our theme song, Happy Music, is by Monkey Man 535. Special thanks to Connie Evans, Ulner Jamal, and Josh Drew. And a special thanks to you for listening. See you again soon.